Access to mental health supports and services is increasingly hard to obtain across Canada. The mental health difficulties created by the pandemic have seen demand shoot up a huge amount, and the available pool of mental health professionals has not only been able not to keep up, but in many cases is shrinking. So how can people help themselves while sitting on a wait list, or if they're unable to afford therapy? How do you determine which self-help books are actually helpful and which ones are selling snake oil? My guest today doesn't have all the answers, but he has some excellent suggestions as we talk about this and much more. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is our podcast, Mindful. How do we find good guides to self-care? And what does a therapist do to stave off burnout? My guest today has been very open about some of his own struggles during the pandemic, how those have affected him and his practice, and what he's doing about them. Hi, uh, my name is Dr. Ho Yuan Luo. I'm a registered psychologist in uh, Toronto, and I'm currently in private practice, and I'm also a certified therapist in cognitive behavior therapy, and I'm the current chair-elect of the Counseling Psychology section of the Canadian Psychological Association. All right, and as the chair-elect of the counseling section, you've been doing some media appearances recently, uh, some radio interviews and some uh, newspaper articles. Uh, I'm just tell me a little bit about that. What are the things people are asking about right now? So a lot of people are asking about the impact of the pandemic on people's mental health and access to mental health care. That's a very severe issue because uh, as many people know, even before the pandemic, a lot of people had challenges accessing mental health care, even in private practice, meaning that they have to pay out of pocket they still had to wait for months sometimes. The pandemic definitely just make it worse. And on the other side, as a mental health professionals, we are humans too, and we are impacted by the pandemic. So that being said, for, for example, myself personally, I had some physical and psychological struggles during the pandemic, and I had to reduce my workload. So that being said, I work less to take care of myself. And as a result for clients, it's even harder for them to see me. So it's kind of a vicious cycle from there. So I think that's a big topic that media and the people have been curious about. The second thing is more of like the general psychological mental health topics, like how to support partners with depression and how to manage uh, better manage time for people with ADHD uh, and Topics like that, just general mental health topics people are interested about. And those kind of topics, right? The supporting a partner who's experiencing depression, uh, better time management, work-life balance is a big one that I hear about a lot as well. Is that the kind of thing that you're seeing in your own uh, private practice? Uh, Are those the kind of issues that you're dealing with with your clients? Well, those are definitely part of the commonly seen uh, presenting concerns. And I would say a very interesting issue uh, in, during the pandemic, before the pandemic as well, is that pandemic is kind of like a wake-up call for a lot of people. Before the pandemic, a lot of people would, would think, oh, making money is so important for me. I just work hard for no matter what, I want to make money. But pandemic happened and they realize that making money is probably not the most important thing, or, or at least it's not the only important thing in their life. 
they realize that their health, their wellness, their families, the connections with other people are also very important. So that being said, this is what I have observed over the past two years is that pandemic, although had a lot of negative impact, they help a lot of people really reflect on what's really important to them. So they ask this kind of question, what can make my life more fulfilling with pandemic and, uh, and afterwards? So that's, I, I would say, is a very interesting and very important topic that I observed. Yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of that results in people saying, I do need to take care of my mental health and something that they may not have been doing before, which is reaching out for help. Uh, in that circumstance. And you and I have talked a little bit uh, previously about what that help looks like. When you reach out for psychological help, for mental health help, uh, for you know somebody to help you through that, the expectation of somebody going into that process versus what it actually is and does can be a little bit different. And I'm hoping you can explain a little bit more about that. Oh, yes. Yeah. So this is a, a very great topic. I have... Uh talked a lot about that with both my clients and just like my friends or people like in my daily life. So first of all, when it comes to psychotherapy, let alone this, the accessibility issues, like people, it can be hard for people to get uh, access to the mental health care system. But in terms of the psychotherapy itself, it takes time. For a lot of people, they expect that uh, uh, psychotherapy can just cure their problems like within very few sessions. Most of it can happen, but most of the time it's not the case. It takes time and it takes effort for them as well. Like for example, like they when they come to therapy, they have to be actively thinking and reflecting on their personal stories and then the different perspectives being offered by therapists and also talking about something that they probably don't want to talk about that much in their daily life. It can be painful, right? So that being said, coming to psychotherapy, it takes effort, takes time, and that takes courage too. And that usually can be daunting for a lot of people already. And But when they come to therapy, and while the therapists are professionals, and they take a lot of years of training, and they will help clients navigate that process. So it's kind of like a mutual, uh, it's kind of like a uh, mutual, like a two-way street. So uh, they need to take their effort, but with the help of the therapist too. What I'm thinking about, and I'm thinking about this from a very personal perspective. So I threw my back out a little while ago and I started to go to physiotherapy. Physiotherapist gives me exercises to do, monitors my progress. I go home, I do those exercises. I make sure that when I go back to the physiotherapist the following week, that uh, I've done all of the exercises that she's explained to me. And, you know, then we do another treatment, another session, maybe modify the exercises a little bit so that I'm getting the most benefit out of it. And uh, that does become an ongoing process to this day. Every day I have to get up and I have to do the back exercises and the leg exercises and all the things that uh, were prescribed is not the right word, but uh, recommended to me along the plan. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about with psychotherapy as well, where you're going to go home, you're going to have some homework, and then you're going to have to continue doing that uh, for as long as it takes or forever, perhaps? Some 
approach, psychotherapeutic approaches are like that. For example, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT for short. As a CBT therapist, we do a lot of this, what we call the structured therapy, meaning that when clients come to the therapy, we do assessment first. The purpose of the assessment is to have a better understanding of clients' concerns so that we can see what we can do. And usually we would have like a, a third treatment manual that guide our treatment process, which usually includes some therapeutic tasks like seeing things from a different perspectives, how to regulate emotions, how to do things in a more efficient way and how to cope with physical symptoms like panic attacks. And at the end of each session for CBT therapist, we usually will encourage our clients to do some homework, just like what you said. These homeworks can be, uh, very, ca can be very casual, right? So for example, uh, let's say for uh, clients with uh, depression, we may ask them to document their daily activities to have a better sense of what, what, what are they doing on each day. And with that now, we may gradually ask the person to do more things that makes them feel happier, makes them feel they are competent. So those kind of homeworks that is very common in CBT, but I have to say, uh, CBT is not, psychotherapy is not only about CBT. There are other psychotherapeutic approaches that doesn't involve regular homework assignment, but that can be still effective. Now, I do want to talk about access a little bit. And again, with my physiotherapy example, uh, I got eight weeks of physiotherapy. And after that, my benefits ran out. Now I would have to pay for it myself. I can no longer afford to do it. So I stopped at the end of those eight weeks. And I hope that the exercises that I was given that I can continue doing for as long as it takes are going to improve my back situation and, and continue to make me better, or at least maintain, you know, enough that I can sit down and work all day, right? When it comes to something like psychotherapy, is that something that hopefully you leave somebody with at the end of, you know, they have to stop now, they just can't afford to continue going, but can they take what they've learned and continue applying that to their daily life? That's exactly the case in the current mental health practice because not everyone has unlimited money for psychotherapy. It's all short-term. By saying short-term, I mean it ranges from four sessions to 20 sessions. Most people will fall into those number of sessions. So that being said, as a therapist, I always say that psychotherapy, at least short-term psychotherapy, usually won't resolve this quote-unquote root cause of your problems or these fundamental problems that you have. But what we can do is that we will offer some different perspectives and we will help you learn some coping, like very concrete coping strategies. And we will focus on a few, like a one, two, three, or like a few areas of concern. And we use that as example to apply the perspectives they learn and the coping techniques they learn from our therapy. As example, Dana, when they don't have enough 
money or time to continue, they can apply the perspectives they, and techniques they learned in therapy to other areas of concern in their daily life. So that's how short-term psychotherapy works. And I usually, I, I usually say like, this is kind of the expectations I encourage people to have about short-term psychotherapy. A little further along, right? Uh, when we're talking about access, a lot of people just can't access a therapist because the wait lists are so long. There are just so many, or they can't afford to do it in the first place. They don't have benefits that cover it. It's going to cost, you know, $150, $200 a session. And, you know, we are in a pandemic where, as you said, work may not be as important. Money may not be as important, but a lot of people can't work and haven't been working and just don't have the money for this sort of thing, which in and of itself can cause some psychological issues, some uh, real mental health problems. So what are some of the universal things, the universal ways that somebody who does not have access, uh, maybe they're on a waiting list or maybe they just can't afford it, uh, could maybe do to, you know, on a daily basis, try to maintain reasonable mental health? Yeah, so that's a very realistic concern for a lot of people. Therapy can be expensive, if, if particularly if they don't have a uh, extended health benefits. And one, well, there are two things came to my mind when I he hear this question. First is that there are a lot of low cost or free mental health programs funded by the government uh, available in Canada, such as Wellness Together Canada, Bounce Back, and some therapist assistant CBT apps uh, that's, that was made free in Ontario at least uh, during the pandemic. And also there are some community support programs like Canadian Mental Health Association. They, they, have like branch, they have branches across the nation and they usually offer low cost or free mental health uh, support programs in the community. So this is, a, this, is the, this is the first resource that came to my mind. But usually they have wheelers too, uh, but it's still worth checking in. So this is the first one. The second one coming to my mind is really the self-help books and videos. There are tons of self-help books and videos out there. If you search into YouTube oh, yeah. <laughs> or Amazon, you know, tons of that, right? So, and an issue comes with that is really how do we choose? How do we evaluate a good self-help books or video? Uh, that's a great question. I, before I did this, I worked in radio for many years. And at one point, I remember we uh, just people would send us things like, hey, give this away. Right. Uh, here's a prize that you can give people. And I remember for about a year, it was just a series of those chicken soup for the soul books. Right. And apparently it's far more than just chicken soup for the soul. Like it's chicken soup for the brain, chicken soup for the heart, chicken soup for, you know, the appendix or basically every body part. And it got down to, you know, being chicken soup for the lobster fisherman, you know, <laughs> on the East coast, it was that specific. And I just can't imagine that all of those books are super helpful for anybody at some point. Uh, so how would you navigate that, right? You're looking for a book that's actually going to help yourself how do you navigate the massive volume of quote unquote self-help books that may or may not be scientifically rigorous? Exactly. And uh, I actually have five advice for this type of uh, situation. So first, when we are looking at self-help books or videos, we first need to know what we need 
so that we can look for a book or a video that specifically address our concerns. For example, if we think we have social anxiety, if we feel anxious about interacting with strangers or colleagues at the workplace, then、uh, we should look for books that talk about social anxiety instead of some like general anxiety or depression. That's kind of not that relevant topics. So that's the first point. We need to know what we need, and then specifically look for a book or a video that addresses that. Second, we need to look for a book that includes both explanation explanations and step by step instructions. So it's usually called a workbook. You will find a lot of workbooks out there, and they usually include a lot of worksheets, so that. You can really walk through the book step by step in a very concrete way. So, those type of books usually can help people. They can offer practical techniques to help people address their concerns, but also with explanations to help them better understand what's going on. So that's the second point. The third point, I think, we should look at the writing style that is comforting. Understanding, empathic, and also easy to follow. Right. Yeah, because we are the readers. Right. We want to feel great when we are reading a book. The yeah, fourth... I, I I cannot imagine sitting through a psychology textbook.、Uh, oh, exactly order... right. You don't want to read a lot of、uh, stats and figures in a self-help book. Right. I mean, that's just too draining. And、uh, the fourth point is that you really want to evaluate the author's credentials. And a professional background. This is a very important criteria to really evaluate how reliable a self-help book is. Because writing a book, there is no regulation for writing a book. Everyone can write a book, right? right? But how do we evaluate if it's reliable? Look at the author's credentials and a professional background. Preferably, you wanna you wanna read a book written by author that is. Uh, professionally trained and has practice experiences, particularly in that area. The last one I would say is really reading the reviews. Now, when we are buying books, we all we all read reviews, right? Is that really helpful for other people? If we if like if let's say if the vast majority of the readers think a book is very helpful, I think it would be more. Reliable, relatively speaking, more reliable to go with that book. So those five points, I would say, are very important to help people better evaluate the quality of a, a self-help book or video. All right, I, something about reviews that I just heard recently, and there's a psychological component to it, which I found rather fascinating. And I experienced this. I I have a recipe app on my phone, so. I have a bunch of things in my fridge. I want to throw them together. I just punch the ingredients into the app. It comes up with something, and I can basically craft a dinner of some kind based around that recipe. If the recipe has five stars, I am less likely to choose it than I am one that has four and a half stars or even four stars because something in my brain tells me that five stars—that's a perfect review. That has to be fake in some way, right? That has to be a bunch of bots that have, you know, raised this review for some reason. 
even though it's a recipe app and I'm certain nobody puts that much effort into it, I'm certain that if it has five stars across the board that it actually is excellent, but my brain does that and a lot of people's brains do do that. Is that something that you've heard of? I just found that to be a fascinating psychological study of the way we approach online reviews or Yelp and so on. Yeah, well, generally, I think that's, that is the case uh, for, because we all know that a lot of businesses, they hire bots to boost their reviews, like Google reviews, Yelp reviews, Amazon reviews, and that that is happening, right? Right. So, uh, so that being said, when we are evaluating things, instead of looking at the good reviews, I encourage people to look at the bad reviews, like a one-star review, for example, right? right? What do people say when they read like one star? I right? hear their perspectives, so it's more balanced and it will help people make better decisions. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, if you have something like social anxiety, you're uh, anxious about meeting people in person, you're anxious about interacting with coworkers, that sort of thing. Uh, and then you would try to search out self-help uh, res resources for that specific uh, issue that you have. Is it possible for someone to self-diagnose that, oh, this is social anxiety and not anxiety? And would it be different if it's I'm now socially anxious. I'm anxious to be around a bunch of people because of the pandemic, because I'm afraid of passing the virus on to my family members. I'm afraid to interact with people for that reason, or if it is actually a social anxiety disorder. I mean, can people really do that on their own? I don't think so. I highly discourage people from uh, self-diagnosing because usually it is not comprehensive. And it usually can cause a lot of can cause can cause extra distress for a lot of people, such as the example that you mentioned, right? Um, people they think they have social anxiety, and they look at various popular articles online. We don't know where that is from, and they think they have social anxiety, and that itself can cause a lot of pressure because they think, oh, I have a social anxiety. This is kind of like a label, right? And then uh, they probably would uh, feel even worse by having that label. So that being said, I highly discourage people from self-diagnosing. If they have concerns, they have sus suspect that they may have some sort of mental health struggles. Of course, they can look at information online, but don't self-diagnose. Talk with some, talk with a professional to ask for professional opinion and assessment. That's a more reliable way of addressing it. Right. So if you can afford only one session with a professional, make it the assessment session. Is, is that something you would recommend? I mean, can that one session be that beneficial if you are able to come up with uh, at least some sort of, uh, you know, generalized diagnosis? Yes. Actually, in some uh, institutions, like say, let's say in, at university counseling centers, people are more and more doing a, a, uh, a thing called one at a time counseling, meaning that we assume clients to see us for only this time, for only this one time. They may or may not come back, but with only this one session, for whatever reasons they do that, but with only this one session, we need to maximize the benefit for clients. So that being said, it's going to be highly collaborative. We talk about what they want and we directly address what they want. And that's it. If they want assessment, we do the assessment, we offer the results, 
we talk about how to make sense of the results. And, that, and then we offer some uh, mental, health, mental health help resources that they can get on their own. And that's, that's probably it for a single session. And if they want to come back, they can always come back. But that mentality is like, we want to maximize the benefits for a person within just one session, if that's the case. Right. Now, big news, of course, of late is, uh, you know, federal government, provincial governments across Canada, uh, at least pledging to increase the funding for mental health. Uh, we are not yet at mental health parity with physical health, but uh, that seems to be hopefully where we're headed. How long would that take? I mean, would, if we were to do that, if that were the end goal, how long would it take before everyone had the same access to mental health help that they do to a family doctor? I mean, even then that's stretched a little thin, right? I mean, at some point, uh, there's just not enough professionals to go around. What's the situation like now? And, and how much more do we need to actually get to parity? Yes. Well, so first of all, I'm not a policymaker. So, right. uh, so I can only offer my observation and my thinking, right? So mental health care, like universal mental health care is actually available in UK and Australia. I think that's what Canada is particularly Ontario is modeling. So in Ontario, there's a, there's a pilot program called Ontario Structured Psychotherapy Program, OSP for short. The core idea of OSP is that it's gonna offer a short-term psychotherapy sessions for free for Ontario residents. Mm -hmm. so in a way that is very similar to physical health care. And that pilot program has been running for a few years now. And what I heard is that the results are quite good. So we are actually very hopeful that the OSP will be expanded and, and eventually be formally finalized as a permanent program for Ontarians. And I think that is the big trend for entire Canada is that mental health care as a part of the universal healthcare. Right. And I'm, I'm hoping that you can, and I, I, once again, I know you're not a policymaker, but I'm hoping you can expand a little bit on the idea. And I hear this a lot, but I am not a psychologist or a scientist, so I really can't speak with any authority on it, but that psychological health care, mental health care is really preventative when it comes to physical health care, right? We will need less physical health care if we get more mental health care up front, right? Because it does produce uh, negative physical outcomes in the body if you have untreated mental health disorders, if you, uh, you know, stress, of course, we know causes hypertension, high blood pressure, that kind of thing. Yes. Well, that's definitely true. Our mind and body are connected. They are not separated. So that being said, mental health and the physical health should be integrated. And it is very hard to tease out who, what, what is the cause and what is the outcome. They can be interacting. They can be both the cause and the outcome. Like what you said, actually, this is kind of uh, uh, backed up by research evidence as well, that for, let's say, chronic stress, they can really make, impact people's immune system. They can cause inflammation. As a result, when people's immune system are compromised, it's easier for them to catch a lot of disease, like a physical disease. Mm 
So that's a very good example of how mind and body interacts and vice versa. So for a lot of people with physical illness, let's say cancer, they also suffer a lot of mental health struggles like depression, anxiety, fear, and sometimes grieving. And that part, the oncologists, the cancer hospitals, they also need mental health care to help clients and help patients better navigate the diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis and the recovery process. And sometimes, you know, end-of-life care too. You said uh, at the beginning here that you've dialed back a little bit on your own practice. You're taking a little bit of extra time because this has affected you physically and mentally. Can you tell me a little bit about the self-care that you, as a psychologist, are undertaking uh, to make sure that you maintain your own mental health at this time? I love this question. So, uh, so first of all, I what I did is that I, it's more of the fundamental shift of what really matters to me. So, of course, helping people is a very important value of me, of mine. That's why I came to this industry in the first place. Right. Uh, on the other side, if I am suffering, if I don't have a good physical and mental health, I cannot help my clients that well. So that being said, if I keep pushing myself to work, quote unquote, harder, actually no one's getting, uh, no one's really like benefiting from that approach. So that's the first one. I, and that's also connects with what I said before, can pandemic can be a wake up call to a lot of people, at least for me too. But right. I really reflect what's really important for me. So that's the fundamental thing I would say that changed my perspective. Work is very important. Helping people is very important, but also taking care of myself is important. So that's the fundamental idea, mentality shift. Right. Anna, it is the specific strategies how to do it. For example, for me, the way I did it was really to limit the number of sessions I see I, I, I do on each day. Like for example, before the pandemic, I used to see like, let's say six to eight clients a day on a daily basis, five days a week. And I enjoyed right. it. But since, uh, since my physical health and the mental health worsened, I only saw like about two to three clients a, a day. That's the, that's, that's the only number I can take. I, I could take back then. Right. So that is kind of how I did it. So I limit the workload that I do. So with that extra time, I'll reconnect with my friends, read some books, go to the nature, and uh, sometimes just doing nothing. Right. So this is how I took care of myself. When you say, you know, as your mental health was worsening a little bit, how do you know? How do, how do you determine that? Like, what were some of the signs that made you say, well, you know what, my mental health isn't doing as well as it was pre-pandemic. I better do something about this. Such a good question. A good way is to really look at burning out. So for example, if we are doing a work that we like and we usually are very passionate about it, but all of a sudden when you notice that you become a little bit more irritable, even with the work that you like, that's a very good sign that probably you are burning out. Yeah. And that doesn't, doesn't, that doesn't uh, only apply to work. If you feel like you are more irritable to people around you, which you were not like that, then that's another sign. You, you're, you're getting impa more impatient with people. 
So that's a very good sign, irritable. And also, again, with job, for the job that we like, sometimes we may feel like, oh, I just don't feel like I want to do this job. It's not like I want to quit or something like that, right? It's, that's like a good sign of you're tired, you're exhausted. So even for a thing that you're passionate, let's say eating ice cream, right? A lot of people love yeah. ice cream. But if you eat like 10 scoops within an hour, you're going to hate ice cream, right? It doesn't mean that you hate ice cream forever, but you're going to hate ice cream for that day at least. Right. Same with work. Even for work that we love about, but if we are burning out, and then now we would feel like we just hate the work that we are doing. We don't like the work that we are doing, like what we did before. That's another good sign. And so this is what you noticed that you just weren't as passionate or that your your passion had shifted a little bit. And so you decided to take a little time for yourself. I get it. That makes perfect sense. Fortunately, I'm not yet irritable in this interview, so I won't have to cut it <laughs> short to go and, and read a book or something. But <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> but I, I imagine that, you know, there's sort of two camps, right, during this uh, pandemic, the people who, and I think that a lot of, I think a lot of it is that those of us who do have a job have felt so thankful to still have a job while the pandemic is going. So thankful to be able to work from home, still do have a job. And we see so many others, restaurant workers and uh, you know small businesses closing and all these other people out of jobs who can't work, that there is an extra pressure to do that work from home and to work longer hours and to put more effort into it, which again can increase burnout. And on the other hand, there are the people who desperately want to work, haven't been able to because of the pandemic, uh, who have nothing to do. And that's a whole different kind of stress. Uh, I'm just talking, you know, uh, based on my own observations. But is this something that you've observed as well? Like the two, obviously two different forms of stress. Oh, definitely. I think in the this is particularly obvious in the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, people actually in the beginning of the pandemic, like 2020, March, April, May, those few months, uh, in private practice in Toronto, we saw a uh, less volume of calls. Like people didn't reach out to us. And then, uh, well, you went back uh, in summer. And then we were trying to make sense of what happened during those few months. And it's likely to be that a lot of people, they first, they are not sure how long the pandemic would last right B, they worry about losing their jobs so that they you know when you when you even don't have a job don't have an income i mean of course people struggle with mental health but that's not probably not the most important concern to them at that point their most important concern basically is to finding a job right, right. so that being said i definitely agree with you that when people don't even have a like an income to guarantee their lifestyle. And uh, although they suffer from mental, mental health struggle, it is not the most important concern for them. This is why, like basically from psychology, right, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? right? The lower the needs, right? So we need to fulfill our basic needs like food, shelter, right? Those kind of stuff. Then uh, we have the extra energy and the mental space to talk about something, you know, higher, let's say emotion, right? Right. Right, for sure. Now, 
when you started to lessen your caseload, uh, taking on fewer sessions per day and that sort of thing, did you do that by attrition? Uh, just when somebody dropped off, you didn't replace them? Or were you talking to clients and saying, I just can't take you uh, anymore. You're going to have to move on. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering because I've been talking to a lot of, uh, you're being, you're in Toronto. It's a little bit different, right? I was talking to some psychologists in the Yukon and we're talking about being in a small town where it's very difficult to cut off, you know, somebody from psychological services because you're the only one there. And People know you're the psychologist. Everyone in the town knows everybody. And can't you just fit in this one more person? Can't you just, you know, you know, Jim from the hardware store, come on, like fit him in. Oh, all these. And so it becomes overwhelming for people in certainly in a small community. I'm wondering if it's sort of the same for you uh, in Toronto, or if it's a little easier in a huge community where there might be somebody that you can specifically refer them to. Yeah, I think it definitely can be a little bit easier in the bigger community, like in Toronto. There are a lot of therapists, uh, even though there are a lot of people in there too. But for me, the way I reduce my workload is have kind of both approaches that you mentioned. For let's say a client completed the therapy and I just don't take new ones. And for the new referrals ask me for my service, I used to just tell them that I'm not doing well now. And uh, I can't, that being said, if you want to wait, we can wait. But if you want to find out, look for other professionals, and I usually recommend some methods for them to help them better look for other mental health professionals. So, and I also even wrote some articles to help them differentiate different prof prof mental health professionals and how to choose different pro mental health professionals. So I found that that was basically how I handled my situation. So I kind of make sure that even if I couldn't see you, I'll offer some resources, at least. Right. And uh, I'm going to include some of those articles in the show notes here. I mean, one thing that it seems to me a lot of psychologists are trying to do now, as you are, is talk in the media, do radio appearances, do podcasts, do, uh, you know, news articles, because it's a way to get information out there for people without having to, you know, take on a 16 hour a day workload, uh, which nobody can do, obviously. So, you know, I think that's super helpful. Uh, I'm wondering if you can give me just a few of those tips uh, off the top now, how you would go about finding a qualified, proper, good therapist for uh, your needs. Okay, good. So first, go to licensed, registered mental health professionals, can be psychologists, can be psychotherapists, can be social workers. Whatever they, whoever they are, they have to be registered and licensed. What does that mean is that they have the minimal, they meet the minimal requirements of professional and academic training for the work that we do. So that's the first. Second, look at their training background. Even for the licensed professionals, each person's training background and professional background are a little bit different. You wanna look for the person who have the training background in your area of concern. Right. Third, talk with them. I would say almost all mental health professionals, at least in private practice, they would offer free phone consultation before formal appointment. Those kind of free consultation usually last five to 10 minutes. Some people even longer. In that five to 10 minutes, 
you can ask whatever questions that you want to ask. And also in the meantime, trust your gut feelings. If you don't feel comfortable talking with this person over the phone, don't go with it. But if you feel comfortable talking with this person, well, definitely give it a try, right? Because people's profiles can look very different from the way they actually interact with people. So right. definitely talk with this person, right? And if the person doesn't say they offer that phone consultation, you can request. It's a very reasonable ask. Last one, obviously came to my mind now, is that if you feel like something's not going well with the therapy, with the appointment, tell your therapist. And a good therapist should be able to ask for your feedback about how therapy goes and also integrate and discuss the feedback with you and integrate the feedback if appropriate. Mm -hmm. Because you are the chair elect of the counseling psychology section, I'm hoping that we can just, uh, for people who are looking to find a professional, to find a therapist, to find somebody who can help them uh, in a mental health way, right? And trying to find that specific person who can help them with that specific need. I'm hoping you can help me differentiate counseling from clinical psychology. Uh, you know, what is it that counseling psychology means that is different from clinical psychology and different from any other, right? What would somebody come to you for specifically? That's a very great question. So I think counseling psychologists, first of all, counseling psychology and clinical psychology, they overlap a lot. Any difference is smaller than the similarities. Right. This is the first one, okay? So we are doing, we are seeing the same type of clients. We are using the same type of psychotherapeutic approaches. We are also training evidence-based practice in psychology. They are all the same. So if, we, if I have to say some differences in terms of the way we approach psychotherapy as a counseling psychology are as follows. First, we really value what we call the therapeutic relationship. That being said, that, what that means is that we, we basically value like providing some feedback on how clients interact with us in psychotherapy room as a way to illustrate how clients interact with people in general in their life. So that's right. what we call how to use the relationship as an agent to help people because Let's say a person with social anxiety, they come to therapy. They probably would feel anxious about interacting with therapists too. I would imagine, yeah. Right? But they would have, it would be very rare for them to have an opportunity to talk about that anxiety with people they feel anxious about interacting with in their life. Right. But in therapy, we would have that perfect opportunity to talk about, do you feel anxious with me now? And... If, if, if that's so, how do you feel? And we can talk about that. That's a very fantastic opportunity for people to learn that it is okay to talk about anxiety with people they feel anxious about. So right. that's, what we call, that, that's what we call the relational approach. We counseling psychologists use a lot. That's the first one. The second one, we really care about the diversity and the social justice issues. And uh, this is like the, uh, the trend in nowadays society, right? So in counseling psychology, we really care about how to provide culturally appropriate care for clients. For example, like 
I'm in Toronto. I'm Asian. I'm Chinese. I speak Mandarin. Right. For a lot of Mandarin-speaking Chinese clients in Toronto, they really struggle to find professionals who speak the same language. Right. Right. Because for a lot of people, they think like it's really hard for them to express their inner feelings in English.、Mm-hmm. They can still speak, but it's not like not there. So they、right. want to find a therapist that matches with their cultural background, language background. And we counseling psychologists put an extra emphasis on this particular piece.、Mm-hmm. So I would say those two. If I have to say a difference, those two are relatively what counseling psychologists emphasize a little bit more. How much of your practice then is in Mandarin? Well, nowadays, kind of like, like a, almost like half, but less、okay. than half. Yeah, yeah, because I think it has something to do with Toronto, because、right. GTA really has you know a large portion of Chinese, Asian, and Mandarin-speaking populations. Right, and they really struggle to find, like a therapist that's in the same background. Yeah, I expect so. I, I had a request from、uh, Omni News at one point, and they wanted to find、uh, a psychologist who could speak to a certain topic, but they gave me a list of languages, right? And it was, I think, Farsi and Italian and Spanish, and I, I can't remember if it, I think it was Cantonese and not Mandarin. Actually, while while you're here, this is something、I'm, I've always been curious about: Cantonese and Mandarin are those two different dialects of the Chinese language, or are they two separate languages、uh, that are spoken by people from China? I've、uh, never been a hundred percent clear on、uh, the way that works. Well, that's a fantastic question. So, in China, the official language is Mandarin. Okay. And uh, uh, so Cantonese is basically spoken by、uh, people in certain provinces, let's say Hong Kong and、uh, Guangdong. And the reason why Cantonese is widely spoken in North America is that in early years, like a hundred years ago, most of the Chinese immigrants are from those areas. Okay, that's why Cantonese is popular in North America or in other parts of the world. But As mainland China becoming like more developed, so more immigrants are from mainland China, and then they speak Mandarin. That's why. Okay. Yeah. And so those are they are two separate languages then. Well, they are the same. It's just different dialects. So、okay. Mandarin is the official language, and the Cantonese is a dialect now. So I, I guess that there were a lot of immigrants from Hong Kong、yeah. uh, very early on to North America. Yeah.、Uh, and that. Was a more open movement of migrants to and from Hong Kong than from mainland China for a yeah, long, long yeah. time, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the immigrants from mainland China is well, basically over the past thirty, forty years. And I think it's important through almost all types of of healthcare as well, right? I, I used to work at the Dementia Society here in Ottawa, and、uh, there was a huge requirement. For people to be able to speak different languages, because immigrant populations who would come here, right, when they got dementia, Alzheimer's, that sort of thing, they got a little older, they would revert back to their childhood languages. So even if they spoke perfect English now, now all of a sudden they actually speak Arabic,、uh, you know, and they want Arabic folk songs from their youth, and that's what's going to trigger memories, and they want the food that they ate. 
you know, uh, in Saudi Arabia when they were young, and that's you know, going to trigger the right memories. And I remember one family coming in, and they all of a sudden couldn't understand their father at all. And they were an Arabic family. They spoke Arabic their entire lives. He was speaking a completely different language that they didn't know. And it turns out that before he was 13, 14 years old, he had lived in Iran and spoke Farsi and then moved, you know, started speaking Arabic. His family grew up speaking Arabic. They speak English now. And, you know, they had no idea. So we had to find somebody to be able to translate, to be able to understand where he was coming from, right? So I think that sort of cultural uh, knowledge is so important through every facet of, of healthcare and just the ability to communicate it is a huge Absolutely, thing. absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time and uh, for speaking with me today. Thank you so much. It's, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and uh, to share my perspective and experiences in mental health care. Thank you to Dr. Hoi-Yan Luo for taking the time to explain a lot of this to us today. And thank you for listening to Mindful. I've included a few links to the organizations and mental health programs Dr. Luo mentioned, as well as some of the articles he's written in the show notes. Today's episode was written, recorded, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.